Please, brothers and sisters, turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 18 and verses 1 to 8. So, Revelation chapter 18 and verses 1 to 8. Revelation chapter 18 and verses 1 to 8. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's Word. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, oftentimes Christians are unsure, I think, about how they are to live when, excuse me, live with and in the world. Right? They're unsure about how they are to, to interact with the world. And many times, what we see are, are one of two approaches for those who are self-professing Christians. One of those approaches that we might see is what I call total separation. Right? Total separation. The other approach that we might see, though, I might call total engulfment. Right? Or, or, or total participation. And what we need to understand is that, is that both of these, right, total Separation and total participation are both wrong. Right? For, for one group, they see everything, including the world, as bad. Right? They hear what John says in his first epistle. Right? Do not be friends with the world. And so they think that the world and everything in it is bad. And as they see sinners engaging in certain things in the world, they say, well, if, if they're doing that, we must do the, the total and complete opposite of everything we see them doing. Now, for the other group, though, what they say is they say, well, there isn't anything in this world and in what the world offers to us that we should reject. Or there's nothing in this world that we are to be skeptical about. And in fact, 
We ought to engage in everything that the world engages in in order that we might be able to relate to the world. Right? They say if you want to be able to reach the world, you have to be able to relate to the world. And so they might take you know, Paul's statement that he uh, was all things to all people so that he might reach them. And they say, well, that's the same thing that we're doing here. Right? We're just being all things to all people so that we can reach them. But what we need to understand is that neither of these approaches are biblical. And both of them uh, neglect to, to take in all of the Scriptures right, holistically. Right? They, they, they both fail to, to take in all of the Scriptures collectively and harmonize all that God's Word has to say about how the Christian is to interact in the world. Right? For that first group, if they, if they would have harmonized all of Scripture, if they would have taken all of Scripture into account, they would know that God has made the world good at creation. And in fact, the things of the world that He has given to man likewise are good and they are given to be enjoyed by God. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes this, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. I mean, think about, brothers and sisters, even that, that first question to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Right? What is man's chief end? Right? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, where is it that we do that today? Right? We glorify God and we enjoy Him in the world, on the earth. And so we must see that it is not the, the earth that is bad, the world that is bad, but rather it's what man does with it. Right? That is what is bad. That is what is evil. Man's abuse and use of the earth. Now, for that second group that says we have to be like the world to reach the world, and so it's okay to, to curse, right, and to, and to uh, view things as the world views things, and think like the world thinks, and do like the world does, right? They forget what Paul says to the church in Ephesus, don't they? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. In verse 11, he says to them, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. But instead, what are we to do? We are to expose them. In verse 11, or excuse me, in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. And so we need to see that full orbed view of what God is calling scriptures, what God is calling through the scriptures Christians to, to live like. And so we need to see that the Christian is called to enjoy the world. And in many respects, the Christian is to look like the world. But it comes with limits. Right? It comes with limits. Where prior to conversion, we once enjoyed the pleasures of the earth apart from God, and with the ends being our, our own enjoyment, now, post-conversion, right, we enjoy this earth and the things of the earth in God and with the ends being not our own pleasure but the glory of God. Right? And so as believers now we enjoy the things of the earth differently than the unbeliever. Right? This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? Christians likewise are to be the, the best citizens in society. Right? We are to be the best citizens in society. 
What does Scripture call us to do? We are called to love our enemies. We are called to pray for those who hate us. We are called to pray for our leaders and our rulers and, and our employers and all those who are, who are over us, whether they treat us well or mistreat us. We are called to submit to the government. Or we are called to live quiet lives. We are called to live lives that are at peace with all men insofar as that is possible. Or we are called to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But unlike how prior to conversion... We would have put all of our hope and our trust into the government and we would have viewed them almost as as God here upon earth. We now recognize, having clear eyes, having gospel lenses over our eyes, that the government itself only has limited authority. Right? So that now as believers, we only give them the respect and the obedience that that office commands by God. And no more. Right? Recognizing that there is someone in authority over all people that even the government and the ruling authorities are accountable to and subject to. Right? This is what Peter declares in Acts 5. You remember in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles are arrested. They're brought before the high priest. And what does he say to them? Right? Don't go about preaching Christ anymore. And what was their response in verse 29? We must obey God rather than men. Right? This ought to be the way that the believer lives in every sphere of their life. Right? This is how we are to live and how we are to interact with the world. Right? The Christian is not to reject the world and run away from the world scared of the world, but we are to live in the world. And we are to look like the world in many respects, insofar as we live in obedience to the Word of God. Right? We're not to live in isolation. Right? We're not to live in a protective bubble. That is not what we were created for. Right? God did not want to or intend to remove Christians from the earth. I mean, do you remember Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17? What, what did He pray to the Father? That you would not take these believers from the earth, but that you would protect them from the evil one. And so we need to see, brothers and sisters, that we've been put here to, to live. Right? We're here on earth, we, we grocery shop, right? we work, we live amongst a whole bunch of unbelievers, Right? We do things unbelievers do. We go to the, the zoo or the fair or, or sporting events and all of those things are fine. But when neighbor, right, when government, when employer, when friend right, tells you to do something in disobedience to, the, to God, that is when the believer then says no. Because that's what it means to not be friends with the world. Right? That's what John is talking about when he says do not become friends with the world. Right? That we do not take part in the unrighteousness and rebellion of the world. Right? That we do not take part in the disobedience of the world. For it is because of those things that Christ is returning to judge the inhabitants of this world. Right? That's what we see here then conveyed to us in these opening verses. In this first vision then, uh, what we see is that an angel comes to John and we're told he, he calls out to John with a, with a mighty voice and he says this, starting in verse 2 then. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. 
And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so, brothers and sisters, as we just look at those first two verses, we see here what the issue is. Right? We see why Christ is going to come again and destroy Babylon. Right? It is because of her sin. Right? We need to see that the message is not directed to the earth as if the earth is bad. But the message that the angel gives to John is directed to the sinful, sinful worldliness of the culture. Right? This message is directed towards sinful man and what he has done to the earth and on the earth. Right? That is what is being said here. And so I want our, our first point then to be this morning as we look at our text, we'll call it the, the immorality of the culture. Right, the immorality of the culture. Now, the first thing then that we notice as the angel declares this to, to, to John is that what has been said cannot be taken back. Right, what has been said right, shall come to pass. Right, fallen, fallen is, ba- is Babylon. Right, that's a prophecy concerning something that God has ordained to happen that shall come to pass. Which is why this, uh, this, this verse, right, fallen, fallen is Babylon, is actually taken from Isaiah 21, verse 9. And we've, we've said that before. And why is it done? Why do they do that? Why, uh, for what purpose is, is this angel drawing on Isaiah 21, verse 9? Well, what is Isaiah 21, verse 9 about? If you remember, what Isaiah is calling the Israelites to do is to, to look forward to the time in which the, the Babylonians would be destroyed. In which... Uh, Cyrus would come, destroy the Babylonians, free up the Israelites so that they may return to Jerusalem to build the temple. And so what we see the angel doing in quoting Isaiah 21.9 is calling upon believers then and today to look forward to the time when, not Cyrus, but Christ returns. And, and Christ defeats Babylon once and for all. And Christ sets us free. Likewise, another reason I think why the angel is quoting from Isaiah 21 here is to provide for the saints who are suffering an assurance that they might know for certain that Babylon shall fall and that the saints will be redeemed. And how do we know that he's, that he's doing that? Well, because he's, he's rooting that prophecy in the historical fall of Babylon. Right? He's quoting Isaiah 21 saying, think back to that prophecy. All that was said has come to pass. Right? God said they would be destroyed and they are destroyed. Right? So too, you can be certain that this prophecy that I now give concerning the fall of latter-day Babylon shall come to pass. What we also see in these opening verses is that the angel exposes Babylon's devilish and demonic character and nature. Right? He exposes the depravity of her condition. We see that in verse 2. She has become a, a dwelling place for demons. Right? That is what Babylon has become. If you think back to Revelation chapter 16 and verses 3 and 4, how were the, the dragon and the first beast and the second beast uh, characterized for us? There we read, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And so we see that Babylon here is being identified right, with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. 
Right? Being identified with their wickedness and godlessness and, and sinfulness. Also, she's being identified with that unholy trinity for this reason. Just as the unholy trinity appears attractive to the eyes of, of natural man in the world, right? behind them, what is, what, what, what is behind them? What is their nature? It's a devilish nature, isn't it? It's demonic. It's evil. It's wicked. It's destructive. And so what we need to see is that the, the same is true for Babylon. Right? Babylon looks to the eyes of man to be something that is appeasing to the eye, doesn't it? Right? Babylon looks to be a place where you can have great economic prosperity, that you can live well. There seems to be all this opportunity in Babylon today, doesn't there? But what we need to see is that what is outwardly true and what outwardly appears to be true to the eyes of man right, is not inwardly true of Babylon, is it? Right? No, Babylon is just like that unholy trinity. Babylon is a place of impurity and defilement and sin. And it's of a devilish and demonic nature. Right? That's what we see. And on that day when Christ returns, that, that inner reality will be outwardly made visible as He comes and destroys her. But now this imagery of being occupied by demons and every unclean animal on the earth, what we need to see is that this symbolizes for us what happens to a society or a culture or a world when it turns its back on God. That's what we need to see that that is symbolic of. That word, a haunt. It's a haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. That word haunt means a prison. Or a place of confinement. And so we see Babylon has become a, a, a place of defilement now. Right? It is confined here in Babylon. All of this wickedness and unrighteousness and ungodliness is to be found in Babylon. Why? Because they have turned their back on God. One commentator, Douglas Kelly, says this concerning this text. He says, When a culture turns its back on God, The Holy Spirit to some degree is withdrawn, leaving a vacuum. Guess who rushes in to fill it? The evil one and those fallen created beings, former angels who are now demons. And I ask you here today, is that not what has happened? Right? Throughout the world. But I mean, just take for example our our own society here in in the United States. Have, Have we not turned our back as a society against God? I mean, just think about what we've done to, to all of those little ones who have been fashioned after the image of God in the womb of their mothers. Think about how many of those children have been struck down and killed and destroyed as, as we have turned our backs on God. I was just looking at a figure this week from 2020. Approximately 630,000 infants were killed in the womb. Right? That's a nation turning their back on God. I mean, think likewise about how the United States has made a mockery of that God-ordained institution of marriage. Right? But being between one man and one woman, look how they have made it a mockery and now a legalized, right? The, the, the union of man and man or woman and woman. Look at what's becoming to take shape today. Very recently with the, uh, with now, right, we, we don't see that there are two genders that, that has been made by God. Right? That is something Likewise, very recently, this, this denial has come about of, of this God-ordained two genders. Right? He made them male and He made them female. 
And yet today, what has society done? They have, they have turned their back on God. They, they speak about genders that you've been assigned at birth as if it's not objectively true what you are at birth. And now every person is what? They're, they're allowed to, to make up or assign for themselves their own gender, aren't they? So, so theoretically, we can have seven billion genders in the world and we all are supposed to, to, to drink up that lie or else what? Or else you could be punished, right? You could lose your job. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to see the, the constant turning of, of the back to God in our own society and what has become of us. It has become a haunt of demons, a dwelling place of demons, of, of everything impure and unclean. I mean, think about even what parents are doing to their own children today by putting them on hormone blockers and taking them to, to doctors to have what they call what gender-affirming surgery, which is what just mutilation of the flesh and, and child abuse, right? Parents in this country have forsaken their role as parent, which is to provide protection, right, and, and love for their child. And instead, they have sacrificed them upon the altar of the society and the perverse culture in order that they might get a pat on the back, right? That people might see them as progressive and, and forward-thinking and accepting and loving of, of all peoples. And everyone goes along with it today, it seems, doesn't it? Right? All of society is, is, is following along. Why? Why do they do it? Well, because they don't want to be shut out of society. They don't want to, to lose the ability to acquire wealth and to live lavishly and to live luxuriously, so they go along with it. I mean, almost every commercial now I see, whether it's in an insurance commercial or a prescription drug commercial, they... The LGBTQ plus communities is now always represented in these commercials. But that is strategically done. Right? It's strategically done. They, they think if I keep putting this in their face over and over and over again, it will be normalized. And they no longer will fight against it, but rather they will accept it and affirm it and receive it. But that is the moral depravity that our culture is devolved into, isn't it? And it's what we're going to continue to see our culture and society devolve into. Now we see this in verse 3. All the nations have drunk the wine of depravity and immorality. Why? All because people worship money. People worship prosperity. People worship power. People worship comfortability. They don't want to lose any of those things. And so they go along with a wicked and, and, and impure society and culture. And so, brothers and sisters, this ought to help the Christian then to navigate the world, shouldn't it? You have to help us to see how we are to live in this world. Right? If Babylon represents immorality, if Babylon represents impurity and ungodliness and unrighteousness, we must never, right, follow after their footsteps in these things. Right? We must never let them be our guide in how we are to parent. Right? And how we are to think, how we are to act, how we are to speak. Right? Brothers and sisters, we aren't to be guided like this world is by, by feelings and emotions, but rather we are to be guided by the, the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is God's Word, which is immutably right, right and perfectly true. And so what does that Word say that we do? Well, that takes us to our second point this morning then, which is coming out from the world. Coming out from the world. Please look with me at verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. So what are we to do? God says, come out of Babylon. 
Withdraw from Babylon. Leave Babylon. But the question is how? Because we live in Babylon. So does that mean we all are to pool our money together and take an airplane to a to a private island somewhere and, and live by ourselves to escape Babylon? No, of course that's not what it means. What he is saying when he says come out of Babylon is to have no part of her sin. To have no part of her sin. You see, the rulers, the people, the merchants so allowed themselves to be infatuated with the woman, to drink of the wine of her sexual immorality and what has become of her. Right? She's now going to be destroyed. Right? This is one reason why we're called to come out from her. Right? Why we're not to partake of her sin because if you do, what will result in it? What does he say? Come out of her lest you take part of her sins lest you share in her plagues. Right? He's saying, come out of Babylon, lest when Christ returns, you be found to be in Babylon and you be destroyed with her. That is what he's calling. This is what's so sad, brothers and sisters, though, about so many Christians or, or self-professing Christians today is that they don't know that they, when Christ returns, are going to perish with Babylon. But why is that? And why are so many self-professing Christians going to perish with Babylon? Because they have not come out from her. They have not come out from her. Right? They profess Christ with their mouth, but their heart lies with Babylon. Right? Not with Jesus. This is why, though, that idea of, of, uh, of a carnal Christian is so destructive. Right? Why that idea that you can just say, I believe Jesus with my mouth, but live like the world and still be saved is such a destructive doctrine. Right? Scripture knows of no such thing as a worldly Christian. Right? Scripture knows of no such thing as a carnal Christian or a sin-loving Christian. Right? That is a lie of the devil himself who wants you to become secure in your empty profession of faith so you might be destroyed. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23? For those whose profession rang hollow, He says, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Right in James chapter 1, verse 22 to 26, what does James say? Don't don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. But that can only be accomplished through what? Through the grace of God. That can only be accomplished through the grace of God. When, When He converts, when God converts, He radically transforms the sinner. Right? He radically transforms the sinner. This is the promise of the new covenant, isn't it? In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, what does he say? He's going to put his law within you. Right? He's going to write it upon your heart. Why does he do that? So that you might love his law and be enabled to then go and do his law. Right? That's not the only promise though, right? He's going to, he's going to enable you to, to follow his statutes and commandments, isn't he? That's what He promises in Ezekiel 36. In verse 26, He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will put My Spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in My statutes. And I will cause you to be careful to obey My rules. Do you see what God does to the sinner who has been saved by His grace? Right, the utter change that is involved. Why there can be no such thing then as a worldly Christian or a carnal Christian or a sin-loving Christian. 
Right? Do we see that? Not only does He radically change though our desires in conversion, not only does He radically change our, our heart, not only does He give us the ability and enable us to follow His statutes, but He also gives to us a new mind. And He gives us a new mind. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, right? what is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Those of you here in Christ today, right, you have had a, a radical transformation occur. Right? You have had your, your will renewed, right? your affections renewed, and your intellect renewed. That is a way in which you have come out of Babylon even today and are to be separated from the world in what you think and in how you feel and how you act. All of those things. But it doesn't stop there. We see that through prayer and the Word and worship, we are to be continually, Paul says, being transformed by the renewal of the mind. This is a never-ending process so that why? That we might be able to discern the will of God. So we might know what is, what is right, what is wrong, what is of God, what is of the devil, so that we might know what it is we ought to flee and run away from in this world, so that we would not be seduced by it, which would lead to our own destruction. William Hendrickson says this, To depart from Babylon means not to have fellowship with her sins and to not be ensnared by her allurements and enticements. Right, this call of, of separation, then, in this manner, is a call that every single Christian has been given. Right, this isn't just for a certain portion of Christianity. This is a, a call for every single one of you here. Right, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Right? What does he else go on to say? What does, the, what does the temple of God have to do with idols? And then in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this then, Therefore, go out from their midst and separate that from them, says the Lord. And so we see on, on one hand, right, in, in some sense, we are to be separate from the world. But what does Jesus say? What did Jesus say in His first advent? What does He call us to? He says, you are the light of the world. He says, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and glorify God who is in heaven. And so we see that what, is being, what we are being called to is not a, a total withdrawal from the world. Right? It's not a call to, to go be a monk or a nun. Right? That lifestyle is, is unbiblical. But we are called to be exiles who live like exiles in this world. Right? That's what we are called to be. Exiles who are to live like it. And as exiles, what does that mean then? We are not to love this world because we are not citizens of this world. This world is not our permanent abode. That is what we are being called to. We are to live now for where we are headed as exiles in this land, yet citizens of a holy city. I mean, listen to what our Lord commands of the Israelites as they were living in Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4. If you'd like to, feel free to turn with me there. But I think this provides to us another great example of how we are to live in and with this world. Jeremiah chapter 29, 
In verses 4 to 7 here, the, the Israelites are living in captivity, right? In Babylon. They're under Babylonian captivity. And this is what we read starting in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, right? To all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right? So they're living as exiles in Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's interesting there. Right? We see what God is calling the Israelite captives who are living in Babylon to do. Right? Which ought to be an example to us for how we are to live in this world. He does not call them to transform society. He does not call them to transform society. He did not call them to redeem pagan culture, did He? No, because we're living in a dying culture. We're living in a dying society, one that is perishing. When Noah in Genesis 6 was told that the world was going to be destroyed, what did he do? Did he seek to redeem culture and society? No. Noah obeyed the commandments of God. He lived up righteously in the land and he built his boat. That is our call, brothers and sisters. right? To, to live on earth Respecting those who are over us, but ultimately being loyal to Christ and obeying His will. This is what Joseph did under Pharaoh. This is what Daniel did under Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what God is calling all of us to do here as we live in Babylon as well. To live uprightly in our society, to worship God and He alone, to obey God. And whenever culture tells us to disobey God, we resist the sin of the culture. Right? That is what Joseph did, that is what Daniel did, and that is what all of us are being called to do as well. God is calling every single one of you here today to come out from Babylon. Right? He's calling you to, to withdraw from Babylon, but let us see that He's not calling you to a total withdrawal from everyone and everything, but what He is calling you all to is a total and complete withdrawal from sin. A total and complete withdrawal from all impurity and uncleanness and unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, you are to live in this world as citizens of the holy city. You are to live in this world as citizens of the city of God. All the while, you are exiles in the city of man. Living amongst the ungodly who are citizens of the city of man. Right? The angel is calling us to, to live in purity and not physical separation, but spiritual separation from Babylon. But this only comes through faith in Christ. You know, I want us all to see here that, that a, a physical change, a, a leaving, right, does nothing for you. What, what man so desperately needs in this world is not a, a physical change, a departing of, of, from living around sinners. What we all desperately need is a, is a, is a change of heart, not a change of location. 
Right? Because only when you have a change of heart are you able and enabled to, to come out of Babylon and escape that ruin that is coming to her. This leads us then to our, our third and our final point, which is what awaits our, excuse me, our third point, which is the payback that is coming. Here as we, as we look at what awaits our sinful society and culture, we're going to look at this third and final point, which is the payback that is coming. If you would then please drop your eyes to, to verse 5 of chapter 18 and read along with me here. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The first thing that we ought to see as we look at, at verse 5 is we ought to draw our attention right back to Genesis chapter 11, shouldn't it? And the fall of the Tower of Babel. How they tried to stack something up to, to reach the heavens. Right? What, what's going on here? They're stacking up their works of unrighteousness to reach the heavens. And in both instances, what, what will happen? Right? God, just as he, he undid what those people did in Genesis 11 in their defiance to God's Word, how He undid that, He likewise is going to undo those who have been stacking up their unrighteousness to heaven. Right? God has not forgotten the evil of man. God, brothers and sisters, we need to understand, keeps a ledger. He keeps a ledger. Right? He, he has a book and in it is written the sin of every single person who has fellowship with this world and He will return to pay them back for it. Right? This is the, the law of retribution. Right? The, the lex talionis, the, the eye for an eye. That's what he's saying is coming to the ungodly. In Psalm 137, verse 8, we read this, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. There it is. The law of retribution. Now, as we read our text, it may look to contradict that law of retribution, though. Because it says here a, a double portion. Right? You're to pay her back a, a double portion. And so you might say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound like the law of retribution because it sounds like she's getting back more than what she deserves. Right? She's getting a, a double punishment. But I think we just need to understand it's just the way that the, the word was translated here in our ESV. That same word can likewise be translated a, a duplicate portion or a matching equivalent. And so I think the better way then for us to read, in particular verse 6, is this. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her the, the, the duplicate or the matching equivalent of her deeds. Right? Mix in a, an equivalent portion or a duplicate portion for her in the cup she mixed. And I think that, that rendering is supported by what we read right after that. Right? We read there in... Uh, verse uh, 7. 
as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her what? A like measure. Right? So give her a like measure of torment and of mourning. So what, what's being communicated in both verses 6 and verse 7 is that Babylon will receive a punishment right, consistent with Babylon's deeds. Right, to the degree that Babylon forsook God and persecuted his people in order that they might pursue, right, their own glory and honor and riches, right, to that degree they will be punished. Right, that's what's being said here. And in her pride and her self-sufficiency likewise will be the, the downfall of Babylon we see as well. For at the end of verse seven she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. Here that the pride and fall of historical Babylon we see is typological of what's going to happen with, with latter-day Babylon. Because here in our text, this is actually a, an allusion back to Isaiah 47. Please turn with me in your Bibles there. Isaiah chapter 47. What was true of, of Old Testament Babylon is, is likewise true of, of, of latter-day Babylon we see. In Isaiah chapter 47, starting in verse 7, we read this. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart and remember their end. Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in their heart, I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. A loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall, shall, shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. And so we see that his response to the Old Testament Babylon right, is typological then of what his response is going to be to, to latter-day Babylon as well. And what was his response to the arrogance of Babylon? Right? Let us see the response of God to, to all sin that is undealt with. Right, see his response to those who, who live in this world with pride, pursuing luxury and gain at the expense of their souls. Right, everything that this world loves is going to be engulfed in the avenging flames of Christ when he returns. Right, this is why, brothers and sisters, it's so important to die to the world every single day. Why it's so important for each and every one of us to, to wean our hearts off the world. Right, to, to stop loving earthly things so much. And so may we see our need then to live differently in the world from the world. Right? May we see our, our need to live differently in the world for the sake of Christ. Right? May we see our need to live differently in the world for the sake of Christ. Why? Because He came and He suffered and He died for your sins. It ought to cause you then to want to, to live for Him. Right? And to live for, for His glory. Recognizing that everything you have you owe back to God. May we likewise see our need to live differently in the world for our own sake. Right? What's going to happen to those who become ensnared in the world? They are going to be destroyed alongside Babylon. So may we see the importance of not seeking and setting our minds and our hearts upon the things of this earth, 
but how important it is for us to seek out and set our minds upon all that is lovely and all that is commendable and honorable and true and lovely and excellent. Right? May we set our minds and our hearts on those things and put those things into practice in our lives. For that gives evidence to you and to your fellow believer around you that the Spirit of God actually lives inside of you. As you obey the law of God, it, it demonstrates right, that, the, that you are the temple of the living God as He, as he moves with inside of you to will and to work after His good pleasure so that you can know for certain that you are not one of those who have just made a, a hollow and empty profession. May we also see, brothers and sisters, our need to live differently in this world for the sake of our children, right, for the sake of our neighbor, for the sake of our co-workers. What does Jesus say to His disciples? You are the the salt of the world. If you lose your saltiness, brothers and sisters, what good are you to to your neighbor, to your co-worker, or to your children? And then lastly, let us see this. Let us see how important it is to find salvation in Christ and Christ alone. As we read here today, for those who are living apart from Christ, we see that God says, I will remember your sin." And you will receive the the just recompense for it. But for those who by faith have been united to Christ, what is the promise to us? What is that promise of the new covenant? He says, I will be merciful toward your iniquities and I will remember your sins no more. This is why it's so important for us to continue to proclaim repentance and faith in Christ. For without that you will not have remission of sins. And so I ask you all here today, do you have that? Right? Is, the, is the guilt of your sin been removed by Christ? Has the punishment for your sin been exhausted upon Christ as He hung on the cross? If so, brothers and sisters, you can walk in confidence and you can walk in thanksgiving to, towards God every day of your life for His grace and for His mercy, knowing that He has cast all of your sin behind His back and He will never bring it before you and charge it against you ever again. But He did that so that you would not live in the city of man like man. But rather, He did that so that you would live like a resident and a citizen of the holy city in the city of man, being a holy reflection of God. And so, brothers and sisters, as we reflect upon this this day, may we see how it is that God is calling us to live and to interact in our lives on this earth. And may God grant to us then the the boldness and the confidence and the courage and the wisdom and the faith to do that very thing, both for His glory and for our good. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your words, how they so feed our souls. Uh, We seek to find forgiveness in Christ for our sin in these areas, Lord, as we recognize that uh, too often we have found ourselves uh, being friends with the world or we have found ourselves uh, separating too far from the world. Uh, You have called us to live as salt and light amongst our neighbors. And Lord, we ask that You would give us uh, boldness and courage to, to do that very thing. So that, Father, we might rub off on our neighbors, that we might rub off on our co-workers, 
uh, that you might use us in the witness to our faith to, to draw sinners to your most gracious Son. Uh, Lord, we ask likewise that as we leave out of here this day, that you would implant these words that we have read this morning upon our hearts. May we see our need for Christ every day. May we see our need for His righteousness and for His grace and for His atoning sacrifice. And may it cause us to walk before Him every day in our lives in this world with great thankfulness and gratitude. And we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.